1: So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. to get 30, 30 to get 30 to get 20, 20, 20 you get 20, 20 you get 15, 15, 15, 15 just 15 bucks a month. Sold. Give it a try at
0: mintmobile.com/switch.
1: $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Ask the Industry podcast, episode 94. I'm comedian Simon Kane, and for those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio, and today, TV. Mark Talbot is the head of comedy development at Hat-Trick Productions. Hat-Trick Productions has been producing comedy since 1986. I was born in 1986. This company is as old as I am, and it has been producing programs that I watched when I was a kid. Mark's entire career, almost, has been spent at Hattrick Productions, and now he's the head of comedy development, having worked his way up from the office runner. He's part of the development team that looks for new opportunities in the UK, US, and video-on-demand market. He's always looking to create and develop and produce new shows for Hattrick. He has a host of credits to his name. I'll let you Google it if you want to have a look at it. He won a BAFTA for Best Comedy and Comedy Entertainment. On top of working in the TV industry, he also used to do stand-up comedy. He started a night back in 2000 called Sabotage, which still runs today, although a lot more intermittently since he got a family. We'll get into how the circuit and TV are connected, what Hattrick are doing to give chances to new writers and writers from underrepresented backgrounds, the chances of getting your thing made, how to send something into Hattrick and how not to send something into Hattrick, the impact on social media, on his job, and on the shows that he produces, and so much more. This one, honestly, we're ending the year on a high, guys. This is such a good episode. I'm so proud of it. I'm going to just go straight into it because I'm pretty sure it's December when I put this out. And most of you just want to have a podcast so you don't have to talk to your families. So all I'll say is if you're new here, please do hit the subscribe button. If you're old here, please do give us an honest review in iTunes. And either way, do consider joining the Facebook group. It is the best place to ask your questions to guests like Mark before I go and talk to them. So if you join up, you'll find out when I'm having a guest on next and then you can ask them questions via me. But without any more delays, this is Mark Tilbert.
0: Yeah, if I had started today, would I have took the same route into television that I did? Yeah, probably. I wouldn't have gone to university um, because right. because oh, that just gave me loads of debt that I didn't need. And actually, a <laughs> lot of people that I know in the industry that started as runners, I mean, you, the first thing you're doing is making tea and photocopying stuff, and you don't need a degree to do that. And my brother's a doctor. He's got a degree that he's been doing for the last 10 years. That's because he wants to be a doctor and he's going to be a consultant surgeon and he needs a degree for that. Lawyer's and account, I get it, but to work in TV. I wouldn't have done the degree, but um, would I have done the same route? Yeah, because everything that I did has gone towards helping me get to where I am now, I suppose. Running my own night meant that I was able to meet new comics, but also meet their agents as well. So I learned about that side of the business. Being a runner meant that I was able to learn about the industry and what the different people, you know, what a producer is, what a director is, what a gaffer is or a, DA, a DOP or a production designer you know or, or people in the office maybe you know I, I've been at Hattrick with the exception of a stint that I went away and worked at Objective for a bit I've been at Hattrick pretty much all my working career it would it would it have been beneficial for me to have gone elsewhere and, and freelanced on other shows possibly I would have gained and seen how other production companies make their shows as well but at the end of the day we you know we all kind of trying to do the same things make good quality television so yeah I think I don't know I think I probably would have done the same route that I did and
2: you mentioned like a lot of different roles there that you've kind of gone through could you explain for someone who doesn't know what the difference between for example a producer and an executive producer in practicality would do
0: the best way to see it is that the producer is more hands on nuts and bolts does the day to day work crews up gives all the notes on the script does all the casting what it says on the tin is the person making the show the exec is the person who dips in every now and again and sprinkles their experience and intelligence on the project and probably takes a lot of the acclaim and there's uh, very little to deserve it. No, that's a, that's a bit harsh on execs, but you do get execs like that. And that. That's probably the difference between a producer and an exec. Really, I'd say the producer is the nuts and bolts person, and, and the exec is is there to sprinkle their experience, guide the producer to make sure that they're making the right, what, what they believe are the right decisions. And if say there's something that happens that's maybe out of the producer's comfort zone that the producer maybe can't deal with, like there might be talent issues or a, an issue with the control, you know, the the channel or financial things maybe the exec can come in at that point and help out but that you know I, I think that that's the fundamental difference between a producer and the exec a producer can only redo one show at a time whereas an exec can oversee many because they're they're dipping into different bits of a show
2: we talked about this before we started all sorts of uh, misconceptions in, in the industry a lot of people think that front facing TV is very geared towards youth and youthful comedians and, and younger if we like do you think that's the same behind the scenes do you think it's you have an advantage if you are younger in this industry, as, as a producer or a writer or any of those roles?
0: Or do you think that's more.
2: or And do you agree with that at the front end?
0: What? So, people on screen, if they're younger, have an advantage?
2: In the sense that a lot of people think that after a certain age, you're unlikely to, for example, get on live at the Apollo, or you're unlikely to be given as many opportunities because it's so, or seemingly so youth focused.
0: Define youth, <laughs> you know, it, as, and that, that was youth, not youth. I think. I don't know. Like with with the way the, the the channels are set up at the moment, it feels like there are very specific channels for young writers and performers. BBC Three, E Four, ITV Two, Channel Four have their Blaps scheme. Channel Four itself, as well, you know, is you know young skewing with stuff like flowers and. But then I suppose. It's funny. I was talking to a BBC exec the other day, and we, they were saying that there was an Ofcom report, wasn't there, about the BBC needing to do more for its younger audience. But actually, what channels serve the older audiences? It's only really BBC One and ITV One. You know, Channel Four, BBC Two. They feel quite, to me, they feel quite youthful channels. That you know, in terms of what they're looking at. And but but then when you can like contrast that with say BBC Three or ITV Two, which feels younger still. Like. <laughs> So do no, know, I'm 35, and I, I see myself as quite youthful. I'm sure if you asked my dad, who's 60, he'd probably say the same. So I, I think it's hard to define youth, isn't it, like that? But I, but, I hear, but anyway, I'm not answering your question. Your question is, is it easier if you're younger behind the camera, in front of the camera? No, I think it's the same. I think it's still... A, really hard to sell and produce good quality if you're in front of the camera behind the camera whatever age you are really don't think it matters
2: um yeah i mean i i I actually went down to the i can't remember what they're called they do every seven years the bbc's um i've forgotten the name of it you know the the thing they do where they have like people come down and they can say what they want to see with was that not the one you were talking about no 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 is that the Ofcom? No, no, It's the BBC do like these open things where you can go down and they'll ask you a load of questions about what you think about TV and reevaluate what they've been doing. I've, I've forgotten the name of it. Right. But they're, they're really interesting. And one of the things that came out of that was linked to the panel show thing where you've got to have like a woman on yes, all yeah. of those. But yeah, it was also to do with giving more sort of
0: up-and-coming, so that not necessarily youthful, but just up-and-coming people yeah. more opportunity. Yes, I think that's, that's really interesting because I think there's a difference between someone being young mm. and someone being inexperienced definitely because you could be 50 and have never had a TV show made or be writing your first ever sitcom and, and actually we've, we've had people come here as runners that have been in their mid 30s they've decided I don't want to work in the city anymore I want to be a producer I'm working with a couple of writers that used to work in the city and I think they're in their 30s now they've got a show in development with us and Channel 4 and they've got something in development at HBO they've never written their own original show but they've got something in development with HBO and I, th- I think you're right the hard part is, is giving the, the inexperienced people the opportunity and I definitely think that that is something whether you're in front of camera or behind camera is really it's a, a hard thing to, to get through forget age, it's about inexperience or experience definitely
2: because I'm presuming that once you've had a hit or once you've had a show,
0: more people are like- likely to read a script than if you've not had one yeah yeah definitely two years ago if you're Phoebe Waller-Bridge and you're sending scripts to people they're probably not reading them I think that they're definitely reading them now and I think that there's plenty of examples of that throughout the industry if you've had some success and you know to find success if you've had a tv show on made that is such an incredible achievement really to have got through the thousands of people that write scripts that go to agents that go to producers that then get whittled down to then go to channels that then get whittled down from all the producers to the two pilots maybe that year that channel four are making to then get one of them made into a full blown series that's an amazing journey and you've learned so much you're now experienced aren't you To to do something else, so yeah, I I don't think you're right. I don't think it's an age thing. I think it's about giving those people that don't have the experience the chance to do it.
2: I think also a lot of people perceive the fact that because there's more channels now, both old school channels as in like TV, TV, as well as online, there should be more opportunities because
0: logically there's more slots. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Are there more opportunities? Yes, there are more places to make content for. But I was also watching a documentary this last night or the other night that said that the population of the planet in the last 30 years has gone from 2 billion to 7 billion people. So whilst there might be more channels, there are more people. So uh, I suppose... Yes, and when I was 15, 16 and sending my CV to the production companies that made comedy for British television, it was very easy. I wrote three letters. One to Hattrick, one to Talkback and one to Tiger Aspect because they were the only places in the mid-90s early 2000 that were making comedy. 20 years later, when I have a runner sit down opposite me and say hey, I'm thinking how do I get into TV comedy who should I approach? I give them like a list of 10 producers that I'm friends with that work at 10 different indies and say there's 10, that's a good start, there's probably another 50 you can approach and i think there's over i mean there must be i don't know how many indies there are but there's easily 100 200 indies now making content for for the channels and youtube and so there are certainly more opportunities out there but there are more people more people doing it and back in the day if you look at the comedies that were on they were either made by the bbc or tiger or talkback or hat trick whereas now when you look at the indies that are being made sometimes it's made by three indies there's, there's a lot of production companies now But, I mean, how many of them are production companies and how many of them are an actor and their mate? (laughs) Yeah. But you, so... uh, Which is more the American model. And mm -hmm. the American model is that a lot of, you know, there aren't really producers per se in America. It's more an executive producer for hire on a show or a piece of talent like an actor or an actress and their friend who's an executive producer working alongside them. You've referenced other companies being indie.
2: How do you define an indie versus... So you wouldn't obviously class Hattrick as an indie then? Yeah, yeah, Hattrick's an yeah, Oh, you would? It, yeah. So, so, what's the, so what isn't an indie then? What what kind of company wouldn't be classed as an indie, in your mind? Is it just anything that isn't like an in-house thing at a company? Yeah, so
0: so all independent production companies are basically everything apart from BBC Studios, although I suppose now that is, yeah, yeah. That is an indie, isn't it? It is BBC Studios. So... Yeah, all all production companies are indies, unless they're classed as a label, which is a term, you know, when you're a label underneath an indie. But there are super indies. So there are all three media and and Endemol, ITV Studios. They own several production companies. So what is a true indie? again these are all terms that I haven't made up these are all terms that are written in broadcast magazines so we as the the industry can understand a true indie would be something like Hattrick which is is set up by Jimmy Melville 30 years ago and it's owned by Jimmy Melville still 30 years later somewhere like Tiger was that until it was bought by Endemol Shine I think own it now don't they so that's what indies are until they're bought by super indies and they still remain indies but they're just under the umbrella of, of a super indie I suppose
2: yeah, it's like when Unilever buy a brand and yeah. put it under, and then
0: it's all of a sudden it's under Unilever. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. Quotas are something that sort of get bounced about, and we were sort of talking about that a bit with the BBC, kind of having to to work around certain public opinions and public tastes. How much do they? Because could you guys essentially get ideas in, decide that they're worth making, and then I assume pitch them to channels before you've really made like a pilot because you kind of want to know that they want it before you do that. Yeah. How much do you have to keep track of? for example public tastes or a channel's should we say oh, i can't think of how to phrase it like how how a channel's working around the public and, and and their own audiences or or do you just go that idea is great
0: we'll find a channel for it yeah i mean each channel has their own wants and needs we might get told bbc One are currently looking for a studio sitcom for example so we know that we can then be quite prescriptive when we go to agents and writers and say hey do you have any ideas for a bbc one studio sitcom because we know bbc one want to do one of those right now we also believe you know when we get an idea come through if we really think it's a great idea and and i don't know it's a it's a show about a man it's about a, it's a show about an up-and-coming stand-up comedian who run who, does podcasts with um, non-influential people in the industry. Um, <laughs> if someone pitched us that idea, I and mean, we absolutely think it's brilliant and worth it, you know, we would take it under our wing and develop it and then take it to the channel. Have you seen through this already? Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what's going on here. This isn't me. going out. No, no. Um, So yes, there are quote that not so much quotas. Um, equally, for example, if someone was to pitch us an idea about a guy that runs a paper, a paper office in Slough Um, we might not do it because we know it's been done before very successfully so and but it might be great writing but we just wouldn't do it so sometimes you have to accept that yes there are quotas and there are needs for things that the channel wants but sometimes you've got to go off your instinct and think we've got to take a risk on this this is worth taking a chance you know right now what's what the what are people looking for diversity on screen and off screen but you know in terms of the ideas that are coming through i think there's a lot of people now trying to find diverse and underrepresented writers and performers that can go on television. So we're keeping our eye out for those types of ideas. But equally, if a great script comes in from a white middle-class man, we'd just be interested in that as well if it was if it was funny and, and distinctive and all the other superlatives that it would need to be to convince a channel to go for it, really.
2: Uh, something I've noticed, especially over in America, but a, a bit over here, is is the increase in diver- diversity in writing uh, both behind and in front of the camera yeah. as well as uh, female writers coming through and I mean is that, is that reflective in like you're getting more unsolicited scripts from those areas or I mean do you, do you accept unsolicited scripts or would you only go through agents, how,
0: how does that work from your end? So that's your first question the unsolicited scripts that I receive are the same as what I've always received which actually aren't very diverse, then you know young men have decided to write a comedy about What it's like being living with your parents again, or something like that, you know, which is an idea I've seen lots of, you know. But do we accept unsolicited scripts? No. But when, and I shouldn't say this because I'll obviously end up getting deluge of scripts. But like when people send me the scripts, I do read them and get back to people. But no, officially, Hattrick doesn't uh, accept unsolicited scripts even though I just said I do read them. So no, I don't read unsolicited scripts. Um, just for heads up, I won't be giving anyone his email. Don't, <laughs> no, 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 good, good. Don't bother DMing me about that.
2: Yeah. I know what happen. I get 30 comedians the day this goes up going, I've, I've listened up to t- 10 minutes in. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I believe he does read unsolicited yeah. scripts. Can we send them?
0: Um, I'm sure you've got an info app. Send it at that. Yes, send it to reception at hatrick.com. There, there you go. There you go. There's the email address. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, the diversity thing is is interesting. I don't, you know, what we're we talking about, whether I get them from agents as well. Yeah, I mean, a lot of agents are sending us writers that are, you know, from more diverse and underrepresented backgrounds, definitely. And it seems to be the thing that everyone's writing at the moment, you know, everyone wants at the moment, channels-wise.
2: I'm, I'm trying to work out whether it's chicken and egg, whether the channels have started showing more of that, so more agents are getting more of that to send you, or whether you were being sent more so you pitched more of that stuff and then it started that ball rolling do do, do you think you could put a, a sort of uh, your finger on which one started which or whether it was public opinion that started the whole you know what was yeah. what was that for you
0: what came first, d- diverse writers or uh,
2: broadcasters asking for diverse writers? Yeah, I mean, I think, all, all p- them showing a diverse writer and it going well, and then them thinking, right, we can take risks on more of them because we haven't in the past, or or, or we haven't taken as much risk in the past.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think the writing's always been there. I've I've read a lot of you know, in the time that I've been developing comedy, I've read lots of work from underrepresented writers, and when 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 we say diverse. <laughs> That That's not just from uh, BAME writers, R- writers that are homosexual, writers that are from the north of England, writers that are working class, writers that whatever is not seen that much on television, there's always been those scripts coming through to me. And I think what's happened now, though, is, yes, we're seeing a few more things on television, not loads, but a bit more. And um, as a result of that, Yeah, maybe agents are sending more in, but I'd say I've always received those works. It's just been harder to get them away, whereas now it feels like there is a a bit more of a call to arms to do diverse work. But, you know, diversity is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because we live in London, in a very um, metropolitan, cosmopolitan, all the politans city of the world. And, yeah, I'm not from London. I'm from Lincolnshire. And if you go to Lincolnshire, you'll find that it's not massively uh, diverse. And so some of this conversation with a friend, of you know, we absolutely love Atlanta, the Donald Glover show. Who's loving Atlanta in Lincolnshire? Not many people, I imagine. And that's not a, a, a criticism of Lincolnshire. It's a great place to grow up. But um, it's still a very niche piece of programming, as brilliant as it is and as amazing as it is at the Emmys. And I think it does at the Emmys and it does for Donald Glover's career. He's now in Star Wars and the like. It's great. You know, there has to be those shows and it's probably my favourite show of the last 12 months, but there also has to be the more broad comedies that exist to serve the country because, and this is no, um, what I'm about to say now is no uh, inclination as to whether I voted to leave or remain in the EU because I was actually in Spain at the time and couldn't vote. But um you know, Britain is predominantly not di- is not very diverse. I don't think if you actually do, and that's a massive sweeping statement. But if you go to most of England and, and look around England, it's it's not very diverse, which is a shame, and it should be more. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be making those programs, but it just feels like it's. You know, I, I just feel like diversity is a very hard hard thing to get right because you're always going to get people that don't want to watch those things. It's not a reason to not make it, but,
2: but you've also got a, a sort of other issue at the top end of it where. Um, because, it's, because it's not come through as easily for a while, the, the people at the top end of it, and this is no reflection on you, are a lot of white men in, yeah. in, in a lot of instances. So it's like your, first of all, personal taste, but also your historical taste yes. and your knowledge of the subject will come into play in the sense that you might get an amazing script that, that uh, an agent who's very familiar with that area will love that you might just not know about. I mean I've had that before I've listened to a podcast or something and I just haven't known anything on that subject and at the end of it I really loved it but at the start I've been like it probably isn't for me I'll I'll give it another 5 minutes I'll just see if if I'm going to get into it or not and then by the end of it you know you, you might have learned something or you might have not but I suppose you're a business this is a business and as a result you know you might not have you know 2 hours a day to read 50 page scripts that might you know get your interest near the end because you like the writing and not the subject matter and you know, there's there's kind of a a top down issue as well as a, a, a an upward issue. I think in in some ways. Yeah,
0: hundred uh, percent agree. But that doesn't apply to me. Uh, <laughs> yes. Oh, again, no, 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 no. I, I, I
2: brought you here to have a go. No, yet. no, I, I know, I know, I yeah. know. I know.
0: <laughs> um, no, I know, I know. You should, you should, you should call me out on a lot of things. Um, <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. I think what I, you know, what I would say in terms of my, per- you know, if you're talking about. This podcast is about me, so mm. my personal taste. Some of my favorite shows have been Atlanta or Nurse Jackie or The Sopranos or Breaking Bad or Eastbound and Down. But I am not a poor black man growing up in Georgia Atlanta. I'm not a a, a sort of painkiller addicted nurse in New York. I'm not a gang boss mafia member in New Jersey. Yeah, I absolutely love those shows. And I think you can develop and produce shows that aren't you. Because if that was the case, every single channel that was on television, that, that was broadcast, would just have shows about white, private school educated um, 30, 40 somethings, you know. And I think that's still the, that is still the case. Like, if you look at what predominantly gets made and who's commissioning it, but it's how do you change, you know? I, it's time. We have to give it time, don't we? Maybe we're at that place where things are changing, and there's someone in our team who shall remain nameless, but she often says, "Will we look back in twenty years' time at, at this era and go, do you remember that time where we like tried to make loads of shows about transgender people, and it was really patronising, and, and they weren't, very, you know, or, or we tried to do loads of shows about diversity, and it was, it, it just was so wrong and like." That, what, I, what I think is very interesting is we. why can't we just make a comedy show that's about... Like, take take Nurse Jackie, for example. Would it have made any difference if Edie Falco had been played by an Asian actress or a black actress or a transgender actress? Like, yes, it would have, because it would have made the show something else, but it shouldn't have mattered. It should have just... It could have been anyone could have played that part. That thing's gone. I was
2: going to say, I think people do that now. Some people yeah. look back on shows from the 80s or the 70s and go... I can't believe they would put out a thing that would, you know, just insult mother-in-laws for half an hour or whatever the thing would be. But I think that's, I think if you're, I always look back at myself a year ago and go, you fucking idiot. Like, and I think, and I've, I've been told by a lot of people, you shouldn't look back and have a go at yourself because it's stupid. But I, but I think if you're not doing that, you haven't improved as a person, you yeah. haven't pushed yourself forward. And I think as an individual, on an individual level, you can do that within a year. But I think in a business... Especially, in industry. Yeah. yeah, especially when you're dependent on other industry people to do the same thing. It's obviously going to take longer to turn that ship around. Definitely. And I don't... I, and that's not me you know, giving you a pass or, any, or, or having a go at you. I just think a lot of people kind of will see the end result of something that's coming out now and not take into account that's been in development for maybe two, three, four years. Yeah. You know, and, and instead of saying why aren't they producing more of these Mm. they're not going they're not thinking well hang on that that's taken five
0: years to produce yeah of course it's not going to immediately overnight have happen yeah yeah definitely this is the mega extreme example and i am in no way i want your listeners to know comparing british television production to apartheid but i remember being in cape town three years ago you know this is a country that only in 1994 ended apartheid and yet all the all the people eating in the restaurants were white and all the staff were black. And I remember saying to my, my wife, like, this is so interesting being here because this is something that is taking time to to change. And this was ninety-four, so we're talking twenty thirteen. 20, 23 years since the end of apartheid now again apar- like apar- apartheid and diversity on british television are two very different things but it's the same kind of, it's the same wheel you know it's the same argument really it will take time for us to find that balance and, and go right well we don't have to we don't have to make loads of shows about transgender people because actually there aren't loads of transgender people or oh we found the right balance now and we can just put we can just cast transgender people in a show because, and they can play the lead character and doesn't matter that they're transgender
2: you know but i I think also it comes down to uh, a generational thing as well because there are a lot of viewpoints that are still around that um and a lot of uncomfortable feelings around you know if you if you saw a transgender person for example maybe playing the lead character that there would there would be i don't know i mean do you even get do do you get to know about ofcom complaints like if you made something and and one person let's not say Lincolnshire let's pick somewhere else but someone just sort of went I don't like that would they do Ofcom if they if you got one do Ofcom just forward you an email and say you know this person's had a bit of a problem with the casting or the or the lighting or, or whatever how does that work with you?
0: Yeah, I mean, usually what happened, and I've had a lot of, you know, on something like <laughs> revolting, where we made a sketch called the Real Housewives of ISIS. You know, we, mm. we got a lot of complaints for that. So I remember that it went viral. It was yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. So so with something like that, then what happened in that instance is Ofcom, the the BBC will receive an amount of complaints, and if the BBC receive a certain amount or Ofcom get that, then 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 the Ofcom will talk to the channel about it. So I don't see an unlook. I don't see this complaints exact complaints but sorry I kind of what was the question
2: it it was just how you get that feedback or how historically because obviously now there's social media and things like that that you'll get feedback from but I wondered how historically you'd get feedback if people did have a problem with something that you'd
0: created yeah I suppose we would We would get told it from the BBC if the BBC felt, or the Channel 4, whoever didn't feel like they could answer it in defence of their own, you know, because at the end of the day, the programme is theirs. We make it for the channel, so it's the channel that has to deal with the complaint. But if there's been a... If the channel feel like that we've done something that we shouldn't have done, so we feature someone who didn't want to feature, we have to prove that they signed a release form. So if they made a complaint to the BBC or Channel 4 or whoever, saying, we didn't want to feature in the show, I didn't sign a release form, the channel would come to us and go, did they not sign a release form? And we'd go. Yes, they did look, or, or oh, no, they didn't. We're in trouble. Well, in terms, of, but <laughs> taste. What offends people? I mean, that's so hard to define, isn't it? Like, what is someone's taste? What do you get offended by? I mean, the Great British Bake Off offends me. But, uh, but, but
2: I, every I, time I say that to someone, they're like, "No, you just don't get it." I, I get it. I, it's a baking show.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. The, 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 but yeah. but I'm also I'm also like intelligent enough to know that there are other channels. To watch and i don't have to watch the great british bake-off so watch something else the, what amazes me is when people complain about a show that they don't like and i think why are you why are you even watching it then if you don't like it just get on with your life and do something nice and loving and kind don't write a letter to ofcom on the bbc yes we live in a democracy but go and do something nice go and help the homeless do you know what i mean like do something good rather than sitting there whinging about yes but my license fee pays for this well your licence fee also pays for many other channels and many other things on a BBC news website and lots of other great things that you can spend your time and you know enriching your life if you really need to complain about something that you didn't like from a taste and this is from a taste point of view to so know that says more about for me that says more about that individual than the show
2: for me I take that on a case by case though because as much as I'd love to say a blanket statement of do something nice rather than pass negativity on I do understand that if for example there was a show that portrayed a certain group of people in a bad light and normalise the idea of something to do with that group that's not positive in the long term, I could understand why they would want to make a complaint. But outside of that, I wouldn't make a complaint about Great British Bake Off just because I don't like it. No,
0: no, but hopefully... And I'm sure yeah, there people are. Yeah, and but hopefully you're a more sane person, you know, maybe not. <laughs> you know, Chris Morris, Brass Eye Pedophile Special, Loved hum- it. amazing show, Yeah, and... How many people complained about that and, and thought it was a real show about pedophiles? How many people complained about our show of making a sketch called, a sketch that was two minutes long that was about women that were being brainwashed online to go and fight for ISIS in Syria? We received complaints saying that they could, people couldn't believe that the BBC had commissioned a series called The Real Health. They hadn't commissioned a series. It was a two-minute sketch in a whole series called Revolting. When people are making complaints that don't, stack up then you just have to i don't know you just have to keep doing what you're doing and and hope that you don't make anything that is actually worthy of being complained about but like i said we do live in a democracy and people are entitled to complain and i suppose there is a you know they they obviously feel there's a valid reason for them complaining so
2: it's it's a knee-jerk reaction in a lot of cases and, and, and we're gonna we'll get onto social media and, and how that's impacted you in a bit. But I thought while we are on that kind of train of thought of, of commissioning and, and scripts and things like that, obviously there's an ideal between you getting a script and having something made. And then there's the reality of what you have to go through. Could you, like for a listener who has maybe never had any interaction with a, a channel or a production house, run through what you know, if, if like for example you were just giving like a little talk where they just went well we get a script and then we do this and then we do this that's the ideal but in reality we get a script we have to pitch all, the ch- all that kind of
0: stuff could you just run through what that would be like
2: if someone did send in a script that you liked
0: yeah so the ideal and the reality Yeah. yeah. so the ideal is you send me a script I read it and like it I send it to a broadcaster they read it and like it J- just one you'd send it to the one you know or, or you would pick a few and send it out um, for the sake of this argument let's just say we send okay. it to one I'll be quick yeah, yeah 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 we send it to the BBC and the BBC read it and like it and then we go and have a meeting with them and they say this is great let's do a pilot we then make a pilot of the show they like the pilot and then we then make a series of the show and then we make the show and then the show does incredibly well and wins loads of BAFTAs and everyone watches it. And then they make a second series and a third series. And by then we've already sold the rights to America. So they're making an American version of the show. And then you're winning loads of Emmys. And then you're in America and you're writing a film version of your show and you're a multimillionaire and you don't have to live in Lincolnshire anymore. That's the ideal situation. The reality... But
2: before you do that, can I ask what the timeline would be like ideally in that in your head? Because obviously...
0: Well, if you're a writer and you're, and you're in need of some money, that timeline from sending me the script to the BBC making a series would be... What's a fair timeline or something like that? 18 months? From the moment you press send on your email to me to the moment you get told we're making a series of your show. 18 months. So, so, so in you, two you years' be, time. You wouldn't be paid for 18 months? Uh, you would receive a small amount of money potentially for rewrites and stuff like that.
2: But not enough to live on,
0: potentially. If you could live on £2,000 a year, yes. Um, (laughs) Maybe in Lincolnshire. Maybe in Lincolnshire, (laughs) yes, yes. The reality is that you send me a script and I think that there's some potential in it so I get you in for a meeting and then we maybe make some tweaks to your script and you work out whether you think I'm a decent enough person that you want to keep working with or you take it to another production company. But you've decided actually, no, I'm going to give this guy a chance. So I'll stick with him and we'll develop it together. Hattrick or the production company will then option the idea off of you, which means that Hattrick own it for a year and work with you on it, you know, to, to, to sell it. Once we're in a stage where we're happy with it, We will send it to a channel um in that time we might have developed it here by doing an internal read-through with some actors or maybe members of staff just to hear the script read aloud we then send it to the bbc the bbc read it but they've got something very similar in development which they didn't tell me about when i originally mentioned this idea of yours to them so that's not going to work for them so we then send it to channel four but channel four have just got a, a new commissioner coming in so they or a new head of comedy or a new channel controller or whoever so they can't make any decisions for the next three months you need to wait a few more months then you get some feedback why, why can't they make decisions because the, there's a no boss there so they're waiting for that so they're waiting for the person to of commands right yeah so when a commissioner starts they have to wait a few months to get into the rhythm of it before they can even make a decision uh, well when a commissioner starts they might have other things on the slate that needs to Right. Yeah. So yeah, eventually Channel 4 read it and actually like it, so then we go in for a meeting with Channel 4 and then they give us some notes and they could vary from, here's a couple of notes to actually could your lead protagonist not be English and could he be based on the moon I mean it's never really as mad as that but um, anyway, we then develop it with Channel 4, Channel 4 then maybe give us a bit of money to put on a read through or to film a taster tape, if they like that then they might commit to a pilot then we make a pilot and then Um, when we're making a pilot everything goes well and then the channel watches it and they really like it but then your lead actor drops out of committing to a series so then you're trying to find a new actor to be in the series and then channel four say we don't want to do it because we only want to do it when the actor was attached to it so you then take it to how many channels? sky and sky say oh actually yeah we quite like this script um, maybe we can do a pilot of it. So we do a pilot for Sky, and this has been about two, three years now. And then you make a pilot for Sky, they have some notes on it. They say, but we're not quite sure about some of the casting, could you do another pilot? So you make another pilot. Uh, and the, the, you then make a pilot with Sky, and then they commission a series, and then you make a series, and no one watches it. The critics hate it, and it gets panny, you don't know, get a second series. And that's been four years of your life. That's a good scenario, because you've got your show made, But obviously it's not the best case scenario. What you want is you want to be the person that creates the next office or the next catastrophe or the next, you know. There are, and there are many ways to the next office and the next catastrophe, but a massive part of those routes are luck and timing. And when The Office first came out, no one watched it. And we forget that The Office was on television and no one watched it, and then a few months later, the BBC re-showed it on BBC Two, and everyone watched it, and were like, wow, this is brilliant, what's this new comedy? Well, it had been on before, but and then what happened, happened. So you have to have a lot of luck on your side as well when, when doing this stuff, and you have to be incredibly persistent and incredibly tenacious, and if you believe in an idea, you have to keep believing in it. Matthew Weiner wrote Mad Men when he was working on Sopranos. No one wanted it. HBO turned it down. Seven years later, AMC decided to buy it. It became Mad Men. You know, you have to just be persistent, keep going for it, believe in your idea, really.
1: In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: Would you ever, see this, this is the thing that, and this might be my DIY mentality kicking in here, but would you ever upload, so say you've made a trailer for Channel 4, or sort of a pilot for Channel 4, and they've said no, we wanted to act or whatever, would you ever upload or would you be able to upload that to YouTube to see if enough people were interested in it that then when you went to the next channel you could go we don't have to make you a new pilot we've got this one look it's got 300 million views and you know everyone underneath it's loving it would you like to make it into a proper thing for TV or or are these pilots having to be hidden because of legal legal
0: something the pilots are hidden because of legal something right. basically like we can't I'm not well, we've never put a pilot up on YouTube and just said hey guys, do you like this, what do you think? Because yeah, there are, you know, the the pilot is owned, the person that that paid for the pilot owns it. So you can't upload the property of Channel 4 or Sky or BBC to YouTube without their permission. And they're not gonna give you the permission to do that. when, when when your show, get, if your pilot gets turned down by the broadcaster that funded it, it goes into what's called turnaround, which means that you can try and sell it somewhere else, but you have to pay those costs potentially back to the channel. Um, so, yeah, you can't just upload it to YouTube and go, hey, guys, what do you think of this? Because I'm sure that there are loads of pilots made by really, really great pilots with lots of famous people in now. You know, Pilots that probably had Benedict Cumberbatch in before he was come about. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure people would love to see those shows, but you can't because they're owned by someone and a broadcaster doesn't want you to see them. Which is a shame, because it would be an interesting way, it would be a dem- democratic way of certainly finding out, if you made a pilot and it got turned down and then you put it on YouTube and 300 million people watched it and there was all positive comments and yeah, that would be a hard one for then the channel to say no to, wouldn't it? Yeah,
2: yeah. I'd say, uh, I don't want to compare the two, but lego.com have a great section where if you've got, if you've made your own version of something, right. you can upload it and then people can vote for it to become a real kit, if you right. like. Okay. Which I quite like as a system because yes. it, that's how they got the Ghostbusters fire station. Some, <laughs> it was a fan project and then they went, we'll fucking make this. Well, we've got to pay them you know, a cut to it because yeah. they have to were like yeah everyone seems to love this they right. it was Shaun of the Dead but they said that it was too graphic or something for Lego and it was wow it, I don't, it wasn't graphic it just had a baseball bat which had a little bit of blood on it they'd
0: made and stuff it was cute
2: it right
0: was, yeah yeah no the um, that was a, that's a good way of doing it yeah Amazon yeah. make pilots and then the ones that the audience like the most and give the best feedback on Amazon commissioned into full series uh, you know the BBC 3 make their feeds BBC 3 feeds I think they're called slices now but they are pilots that if people like lots of, they'll they'll commission one of. And Josh was a pilot on that strand. Uh, what else was they then? People Just Do Nothing was a pilot on that strand. And so that works for on, like Amazon and BBC Free online platforms. But um, yeah, I don't know if all the channels could do that. What
2: I find really interesting as well is, I mean, and I'm talking to uh, quite a few writers about this, and uh, if they've got, like, a rate that'll pay you for the series or or, or for the, the cost of creating a pilot or whatever, when they put it out on TV, so let's say Channel 4, they get paid for adverts. That's how they make their money, basically. And yet, if, for example, you put it on a slot that would naturally get more viewers because it's the dinner time that most people be watching it, you don't get paid any more even though they'd make more on the adverts by that program being there. Do you think that's a system that will change in the future with, you know, basically online being funded by adverts as well and them getting paid per view rather than just getting paid because it's online? Just explain it to me again. So so if I put a thing on YouTube and it gets three hundred million views, right? I would get paid per view from YouTube. Whereas if I sold you a show and you put it on at 730 in the evening, and it got 300 million views. I wouldn't get paid any different than if they put it on at three o'clock in the
0: afternoon and it got half a million views. Right, right. I hear what you're saying. So as a writer, should you be entitled to more money if your show gets more viewers? Or as a production house?
2: Like, surely you're creating something that is helping them sell an advert easier... Yes. ...and making
0: them more money? Well, it kind of does work like that already. So, for example, if you were a writer who wrote a daytime TV drama... You're not going to get as much as if you're a writer who writes a nine o'clock BBC One Sunday night drama, because more viewers will watch the Sunday night drama than the budgets. Sorry, the budget for the shows are different, right? Um, and so I would imagine that the, the writing fee for them. So for best example is like radio. So Radio Four obviously pay a lot less for writers to write a script than BBC One pay. Because Radio Four gets less listeners than BBC One gets viewers. At least I think it does. <laughs> it should do. <laughs> I don't know. You've not written for Radio Four then? For no, 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 no. <laughs> um, but yeah. So, so it, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. I suppose that's a question about whether, how it changes in the future. Like hmm. if, but ultimately, are Netflix going to pay someone more money? The way Netflix will do it is Netflix will pay you more money if you're more famous. If you're Jerry Seinfeld, you're getting 100 million for free, three whatever it is, stand-up specials. If you're Mark Tolbert and you've never made any comedy for Netflix before, then they're not going to pay you $100 million to make, to make it. Do you know what I love? is like, I bet you any money, there is a number of people listening to this going,
2: Mark Oh, Mark. Like, yeah. as, in, as in they'll be trying to place you on the circuit. Yes, yeah, yeah. And to yeah, do yeah. it that way. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah.
0: Mark Tolbert. Oh, yeah, not Jerry Seinfeld. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So yeah, I think the answer to your question is, yeah, you, you do get paid proportionally, but there's less money in daytime because there's less people watching.
2: Yeah. Well, how, I tell you what, let's talk about your live work or, or your, because your,
0: you don't gig now at all, is that right? Or I haven't done for a few years actually, no, no. Do you still run Sabotage? We, we did up until the summer, but we've stopped doing it now. I mean, it's always there and always something that we want, you know, looking for venues to put it on. We might do something in the new year, in quite an amazing venue, which I'm not going to tell you about because if it doesn't happen, then I'll, I'll just look like I'm talking shit. Um, I, I love it. I don't think there's nothing I get more excitement from than doing live comedy or seeing live comedy because in terms of comedy, obviously there's lots of things in my life I get more excitement from. But, um, but in terms of, like, like I went through that process with you about how to sell a TV show. Like, that process can take three, four years in some instances. Seven years for Mad Men. The moment you stand on stage and hold a microphone in your hand, you're not waiting seven years for a laugh. Well, unless you're very bad. You're getting an instant reaction from an audience, and you're finding out what they think about that joke there and then, which is amazing, and that feeling is fantastic.
2: Yeah, and so do you want to explain what sabotage is, just for anyone who doesn't know?
0: Yeah, so sabotage is a comedy night that I set up in 2006. It was when I was a runner here and I just started a hat trick as the runner and wanted to start doing... What I wanted to do was I wanted to start getting to know other comics on the circuit and their agents and just starting, you know, introducing myself to people that didn't really know me and running a, com- a live comedy night because I absolutely love comedy. So, or at least I did back then when I was less cynical. Um, and... Yeah, it was great. We had loads of new acts on at the time who were new acts, like Cardinal Burns or Jack Whitehall or Sarah Millican. And Stephen Merchant came down a couple of times. He wasn't new at the time, but uh, it was great to have people like that. And it just snowballed and became a really popular night that we did in East London. And then eventually we we did a couple of series on Radio 4 Extra that we recorded at Hoxton Hall, and that was good fun. then we recorded a, a series at the backyard in Bethnal Green did a few, continued to run it in Bethnal Green for a year, and then recently did it at the Bill Murray in Islington, did it there once a month. And then, yeah, like, we had... Um, so I was the resident host of the night, and I would book the axe, but then eventually it became something that Hattrick would cu- sort of run, and Hattrick, booked the, you know, with my help, Hattrick would book the axe. And then eventually when we did it at the Bill Murray, it was just a charity night that we did, and I didn't have... I didn't have anything to do with the the comics booking them or performing it. I was just an audience member that just enjoyed coming down and watching it. And Kiri Pritchard-McLean was the resident MC and she was fantastic. And we had um, different acts. Kitson came down and did it. And uh, who else do we have? And John Kearns. You know, all like the sort of brilliant stand-ups that are out there at the moment. So, yeah, it was... It, it, you know, and hopefully we'll bring it back next year and in this new venue and it'll be great. And yeah, I mean, I love it because we see new acts, we see established acts.
2: Uh, does that, like, help you discover new writers? Because when you watch someone live, it's such a different skill to writing for a scripted comedy show, for example. How, when you see someone live, are you able to extrapolate or even hypo- hypothetically extrapolate they'll be good at writing
0: for this show or they'll be good on acting in this? Yeah. Um, well, I think it depends. if they're stand-ups, like... We kind, you know, if someone's a stand-up, you can kind of tell from their performance style if you know what they're going to be like. Maybe it's a good question because I'm trying to think. Well, who have I who have I worked with off the back of Sabotage? it's Probably the best place to start, isn't it? Yeah. I think the answer is probably more sketch acts. Like you know, tried to develop something with Seb and Dustin from Cardinal Burns when after I saw them as Fat Tongue doing our night. Like a lot of stand-up comics are really good comics and therefore good. Personalities to have on, say, have I got news for you? But then there is, you know, then there are other stand-ups that are also like Ashling B, for example, who's a really good actress as well and wants to do acting and you know, as well as stand-up and writing and it has lots. There are other people like I remember when Michael McIntyre was just starting out, and I was, I remember Sabotage just started, and I said to him, "Hey, do you want, have you got any sitcoms you want to write?" And he said, "No, I just want to present shows and, and be on panel shows." So it's also about who, what those comics want to do, and if someone like. Ashling wants to do stand-up and be an actress and write or someone like Holly Walsh she's same same thing you know then that's great and if someone wants to just be a stand-up comic and not work on TV that's also fine or if like Kitson or if someone wants to be on panel shows and just do that then that's also fine like so um, yeah I suppose what I'm looking for is is those people that first of all make me laugh and then it's a conversation after that where you say do you have any sitcom ideas or the world that you're describing, that could be an interesting world for a sitcom character, not a stand-up comic in a sitcom. But you've just talked to me about, for example, what it's like to be a first-generation immigrant, or you've just talked to me about what it's like to be pregnant at the age of thirty, or I don't know whatever, whatever the, the the comic is talking about on stage. Well, there could be an interesting sitcom in that. And then what we talk to is we talk about, you know, in the past we've tried to develop stand-ups and pair them up with writers. Mike Wozniak, for example, I remember when he first started. Absolutely, you know, I used to go and watch him all the time. Absolutely loved him, and um, we tr- talked about an idea, we paired him up with a writer that had, had more sort of worked with Hattrick and had lots of sort of credits and established writer, and tried to develop a show with him. So sometimes it's about pairing people up as well. We're currently developing something with Richard Gadd that we've paired him up with a writer. You might sometimes see something in someone, but they might need a bit of help, and. if you look at the sort of best comedy creations like alan partridge Kugan had that great character but he worked with lots of brilliant writers ricky gervais had that character and he worked with Stephen, and they created the office so sasha baron cohen team of writers, you know all those great characters they have they have a team of writers so there's no reason why we can't go and watch a stand-up comic and go, oh, they'd be brilliant, but they might need a bit of help with writing. So let's pair them up with this writer or that writer.
2: It was, a, yeah, it was only a question I was thinking about because before we started talking, or before we started recording, uh, we we're talking about Kitson, yeah, and I love for his work, yeah, and how you said you'd love to have him on a show again because he's not done TV for so long, and, he, and and by his own admission because he doesn't want to, not because he couldn't, for example. It's sort of like with someone like that, or even with a newer person. How do you? What, what would you even do? You know what I mean? Like, wh- where would you put someone who's been live for so long in a scripted medium that would have to be edited? Or would it be something like, you know, or, or, would, or would you think there are more markets for like Stuart Lee's for example, where he just did stand up mm. and had those sort of cutaway things? You know, wh- it, it's it's interesting to me how your mind works when you're sort of watching someone live go thinking about how you can edit them in a weird way, like how you can put it on a, on a screen rather than, you know. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. I, s- I suppose that the first thing I'm thinking is are they, is this a funny character? Does this person have a persona that I'm interested in and that is funny? That, that, I mean, that's what it boils down to. And if there's something that I like in them that, that makes me laugh and makes and often makes me think as well, and that's, you know. You know, I think when I, I remember seeing Ramesh Ranganathan years ago and thinking there's a very unique and interesting persona on stage, I'm sure one day he'll have his own sitcom, and I'm pretty sure that they're making one now for Sky yeah I think it's about that on stage persona and I'm not going to go into specific examples as much as I'd love to and as much as the people listening would love me to go into it because I know how I'm, all this comedy like oh but like there are other examples of sitcoms with you know a, a sort of famous stand-up comedian at the heart of them that just don't work not everyone's Seinfeld are they you know so yeah is it is it an interesting character and is there, is there scope for a world to, for that character to live in that would be you know quite interesting so if for example
2: you were an inexperienced writer and you didn't want to send you an unsolicited script because you don't read, will you read, mm, yes yeah. would you accept an invite to come watch someone live because they want you to know that they maybe not for a project just so that you know that person exists as a, as a character yeah do you yeah ever, we get invited to lots of shows is that yeah. mainly by agents doing showcases or is that by indie people, both, like individuals?
0: Both, yeah. Some people will email us and say, hey, I'm doing this show, do you want to come and watch it? Is it Leicester Square Theatre or Hen and Chickens or, the, you know, the Camden Head? Or Come down if you can. And then other times it's agents saying, hey, we're doing the United Agents Comedy Showcase next week. Come down. So, yeah, it's a mix, really, of of individuals and agents. But, yeah, we'll, and we've got a big team, and so someone often can make it. Um and actually what's happening nowadays is people are going, here's a link to me doing my set at the King Gong at the comedy store and not getting back gonged off after yeah, five minutes. Yeah, that's minutes. the key. <laughs> um, or this is me doing 10 minutes at this gig that I filmed. So and then it's on YouTube and people are sending that out. So that's also quite useful to watch.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. You said, you said like the best bit about live stand-up is the immediate reaction. And obviously social media has sort of given you that um, immediacy for TV, not in a the same way, but in a, in a in a much more immediate way than you've ever had. Obviously, there are a lot of shows now that make specific feeds for their shows. How are you coping with that change as a, as a company? But also, how are you finding that is impacting on what you're creating or, or what you're doing with creations as they sort of find their feet?
0: Yeah, social media is interesting because oh, I don't think it's necessarily impacted on our programmes that we make. What it means is it just means that all of the um, producers and writers and performers that have incredibly low self-esteem that used to just have to have that battered by reviewers and critics now get it a thousand times from people on Twitter and YouTube and Facebook. So I suppose from that respect, I I, I mean, I'm not on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. I'm not on any of those things. And when a show of mine comes out, someone who might be will say, oh, have you seen on Facebook people are really loving your show or, or someone's said this really hateful thing about your show and I don't engage in it and I don't, because it doesn't really matter to me, like, is the truth about, a, a sort of opinion about the show. Well, if they don't like it, obviously I want to know if they like it. But does it influence what we're developing? Not really. I mean, we might, you know, have I got this for you? We have a live Twitter feed for that. But we don't really do much in, in the way of, you know, a show's going out live and we're going to interact with our audience online and stuff like that. We haven't really done that. Social media doesn't have much impact, I'd say, really. You know, I'm just thinking it doesn't really have much impact. I know it's probably disappointing for everyone of your audience that are going, oh, but uh, but it doesn't really do much, really. Okay, that's reasonable. Uh,
2: Does that mean that, I mean, given that there's so many more channels and so many more online opportunities, do you now expect less viewers on shows just because the attention pool is more spread?
0: Yeah, I think, well, viewing figures have gone down. Like, when there was... You know, didn't Noel's house party used to get like 23 million viewers or something?
2: I watched it, I didn't keep yes, track of the numbers because yeah. <laughs> there was
0: like four channels. Whereas now, what would get 23 million viewers? Um, I don't know if Donald Trump did fire a nuclear bomb at North Korea, that might get 23 million viewers, and then instantly they'd all switch off. You know, World Cup, the World Cup final if England were in it, might get 20 million viewers. You know, those strictly come dancings, and the Britain's got talents getting 10 million, 15 million. Planet Earth 2 got 10 million the other night. Comedy-wise, I mean, even successful shows aren't getting many viewing figures. A million, you know, I'd say if you've got a million now on Channel 4 BBC 2, that's deemed as doing very well. Because, yeah, it's not just there are more channels. I think also what you have is, oh, more ways to watch stuff. So you might not watch BBC 2 at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday night to watch the new series of W1A. You might wait till it's all gone out and then watch six episodes back-to-back on iPlayer. Or you might wait till it's on Netflix and watch it all on Netflix if they buy it, you know, or or 4OD have their service. So there's just so many different ways to watch stuff now. So the viewing figures are, yeah, they're a bit misleading, really, in many ways, I suppose.
2: Do you you take that into account when you're, like, developing a show? Say say you develop something for Channel 4 and you knew that was going to be on 4OD an hour later or a few hours later or whatever it would be. Do you take into account that it's going to be viewed on a different medium than the original one that you maybe historically intended it to be on or, or do you even change a show slightly because it's going to be viewed differently
0: no i think we always just think we're making a tv show it might be played on an s-vod at some point or, or a, is it a, an f-vod the free video on basically the bbc and channel four are free aren't they because they're from those channels but s-vod is when you subscribe netflix amazon mm. no i think we just imagine we're making it f- to play on a television like we've always done yeah No, uh, no, it's the truth. Like, I used to think, oh, people watch stuff on their mobile phones. Maybe we shouldn't have, like, intricate, you know, like, close-up shots that are too hard to see on a mobile phone, but i don't think that matters actually i think the quality of cameras now is so good you can film most things and it looked quite good whether it's on a small screen or a large screen so yeah i, I don't think that really affects our affects our development of a program now uh,
2: we were talking a little bit ago about the link between sort of your your live night that became hat live night in a way and then the, uh, but the link in general between a production company or a tv channel and the live circuit do you, do you think? there should be more of a link or do you think it's sort of because they're so such different disciplines there's a reason why for example you don't
0: well, you don't go to nights but you you wouldn't go to a night to look for a script you'd wait for it to come in yeah i think we you know we do go and see a lot of live comedy and when i when i'm at comedy nights i normally see a couple of other producers maybe a commissioner there as well so i do you know there are people are going to see these shows but yeah there are two different mediums aren't they live comedy and television is very different and the people that are writing mainly writing comedy shows on television are writers and the people performing stand-up are mainly stand-ups and they're two different art forms and i've tried to develop so many shows with stand-up comedians in the past and got them to write a script and they just can't because they write stand-up material Writing a script is a very... Writing a really tight half-hour comedy or comedy drama is a very special skill, and it's not very easy. and Not everyone can do it, which is why you end up often pairing the stand-ups with the, with the writers that have got the proven track record of writing comedy. You know, we also develop books here, but the person that writes the book might not be the person that writes the script. So it's the same thing. Writing a novel and writing a script are different forms of, of expression. So... So stand up's no different, really. Can writing
2: a script, like a half-hour script, be taught then?
0: Yeah, I think definitely. Yeah, I think um, there are courses you can go on, for example, and you can watch programs and and listen to a listen to a Radio Four show and. See how that's, you know, you can hear because you're not watching the actors and stuff like that, you're just listening to the words. That's the script, you're literally hearing the script in its rawest form. There, does Hattrick do a course or anything like that? No, we don't run any courses. I mean, are there, there are script, I mean, you can go to university and do a script writing course, can't you? MA in script writing,
2: but you've just said don't go to university.
0: <laughs> but I also said <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't,
2: yes, go to university. No, I just wondered if there are any people or facilities that you know of that you would recommend for maybe a listener who. Has never has never written anything, but w- has an idea, but yeah. kind of is struggling a bit.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, maybe it's to get on a script writing course. I don't I don't know where you would go and do that. There must be colleges or universities that do them in the evenings and as part time. Get hold of some scripts. Read some scripts. Read some good scripts. I'm sure that there are some available on the internet.
2: The BBC Writers Room has
0: loads. The BBC Writers Room has loads. Yeah, exactly. Like read some. I mean if you befriend a producer ask them if you can read something they're developing or you know because what you want to do is you want to read good scripts and i'm not saying the writers room doesn't have good scripts but like um you want to read the good you know you want to read an episode of the office because you know that that did well and why it was successful and you want to read an episode of mrs brown's boys and catastrophe and read as many different types of scripts as you can to see how it's how it's done
2: do you, do you have an example of a show that you really believed in, that you, you pushed really hard, that just couldn't get made because of a factor? Uh, loads. <laughs> and do you have one that you could, like, just an, just an example of something that you just had to give up on? Not give up on, but like, there was it just wasn't going to happen and the reasons
0: why? We were developing something for BBC Three once. We did two read-throughs of this project with some young actors in it, it was fantastic. It was more of a comedy drama vibe but at the time the controller of BBC Three loved it he then left he commissioned a pilot but left then the new controller came in and it wasn't for them and so the show didn't happen that's one example of why a show might not happen because there's a changing of the guard of who's in charge and it's not their taste we've developed other things in the past where an actor might have done a a pilot and then decided they don't want to do the series and then the channel has said well we want that actor or it's not happening so that's not happened we've done a I'm trying to think of other sort of, you know, other reasons why things don't happen. You know, often it's just the execution hasn't worked out how you expected it to. Yeah, I mean, that's some examples there.
2: Yeah, no, I I just wanted to know legitimate reasons as to why things might not happen. Yeah. Because, and would you tell them? Would you tell the writer this, you know, we've done all the refuse, the reason it hasn't happened is because the commission has changed or something like that or would you say they've gone another way like how no yeah definitely you I, I mean
0: yeah yeah they're not going to lie yeah no tell them the truth definitely and say this is why this isn't happening now and it's hard it's a hard conversation to make a phone call to make when you have to tell someone their programme isn't happening now but mm. have to do it more often than not mm, I'm sure um and because very rarely you actually get to pilot stage, more often than not you're just getting turned down at script stage. So yeah, at all, all sort of levels of potential knockback, mm. you tell them that absolutely tell them the truth. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So like, so if we went from level, so how many scripts do you reckon you would get in a
0: week? Um, well, I can say that's that question because I'm currently reading a load from last week, and I think my inbox from last week has nine.
2: Nine. Okay
0: and how many so if we extrapolate that let's say 10 just for a round number okay so let's say 520 over a year yeah god
2: and then and and you would read all of those
0: I would try to yeah
2: yeah and then how many of those would you you, and you get back to as many I I reply to every single
0: one of them definitely I reply to it but that's one of my biggest bugbears actually is if someone doesn't reply to you and just
2: and you'd give notes you wouldn't just say this is shit
0: Do you know what? More often than not, so let's say let's say it's 500 scripts a year. I, I would I would absolutely read every single one of them. I might not finish every single one of them. Hmm. Okay, so I would I would know from reading them. You know, by a certain point in that script, I would know this isn't my taste, which is a big thing, or I would know we can't do this because it's on us. We've got something similar on our slate, or there's something in production at a channel that we can't do because it's too similar. And actually, very rarely do I have that 500. I would say in a year, I probably want to develop three. Right. it's probably the truth. Yeah, I mean, I got a lot of scripts last week. I think, let's work, let's do the maths a bit better. Let's say, actually, I'm reading 200. Let's say I'm reading 200 scripts a a year. Of that 200, I'd probably say, yeah, maybe, let's just say, just for the sake of argument, 150 aren't my taste. That leaves 50. Mm -hmm. Of those 50, say... Some of them have been done before, say 25 have been done before or already in production somewhere, that leaves 25 more. Of that 25, I'll share with the team. Of that 25, maybe the team don't all agree on me, with me on like 10 of them, so that leaves 15. Of those 15, i meet the writers. Of those 15 writers that I meet, maybe they decide to go out to another production company or I don't get on, you know, for, for me, that leaves five. Maybe you, I end up working on those five. You know, so from that, that's probably that's probably more realistic, actually, numbers-wise.
2: And then going forward from that, how many, on an average year, of those five would get a sign-off or a thumbs-up or even a pilot from a channel?
0: Well, I'd like to hope that all of them would get picked up by a channel in some form of development, which might mean another a second script or, you know, read-through. But of that lot to get a pilot, I mean, I'd yeah, you'd hope that a couple of them would.
2: Quite a load. And chances in a nice way like, it's quite a hard because I knew it was hard but that even on numbers is, a, is an intense mountain for
0: someone to even it's hard and, and, and I'm one of five, six producers in our department
2: so they're also reading
0: too or, or would, you also, would you
2: email each other and go I've got that script I've already started reading it or do you just all read it anyway
0: yeah I mean I don't know how much other people get sent but like yeah we, would, we, would get, we do get sent a lot of scripts and that's just hat trick Obviously, there's Objective and Tiger and all these other production companies. So yeah, the numbers are low, but look how many slots there actually are. Look how much yeah. comedy is being made. Comedy is in a is in a place right now where it's not like it's not high end drama. It's not like the, it's not the Night Manager high end dramas that you can do with co-pros. It's not daytime quick quick to make you know stuff docky stuff which is cheap it sort of sits in that middle ground within, which has low viewing figures and not you know but still needs quite a lot of money so it's very risky for a broadcaster so you're still ending up with you know less slots therefore because it's so risky to make comedy
2: um, I'm going to just do the quick fire last question so that's okay Okay. what are some of the biggest mistakes that people make when they are sending you scripts
0: they spell my name wrong or call me <laughs> really yeah sorry dear Mike dear Mike dear Mike
2: I don't think I've ever done that, but I'm going to do that every time now. Yeah, in might.
0: <laughs> just getting my name wrong. That's like, if you can't get my name right, then yeah, I don't. I, yeah.
2: <laughs> is there another guy in the department called Mike? No. It, I'm trying to find. A, I'm trying to find your excuse, guys. No, 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 no. Okay. No, go on. What, what are the actual like uh, bare bones mistakes that people do in scripts? So, like, is it the formatting? Is it just the the style? What would you say are the mistakes you always see?
0: I read a lot of scripts that are about struggling writers. You know, there's a lot of them about, um, and that's just a hard to sell. Um, what's the big? I don't know. I think people are pretty. Generally, people seem to be quite proficient at writing scripts. Even unsolicited writers, you know, everyone, you know, people have a rough idea of how to put a script together. What's the biggest mistake? I don't. I don't know. That's a really difficult one because they, they range from people not knowing my name, spelling my name right or at the start of an email or they range from someone not having planned out the series or I don't know, like, it's difficult to say really that. Okay. I know these are quick fire answers and that wasn't a quick fire answer.
2: That's fine, that's fine. What do you think are the biggest misconceptions people have about what you do?
0: Me personally?
2: Yeah. Your your job or your job in general in the industry?
0: Um, the, I would say that it's just that they think that if I want to develop something that probably they think that it's going to be on TV. Like, like we're, you know, that I'm not a commissioner. I don't run a TV channel. I develop TV shows to, to try and sell them. And if they get bought, then we make them. But I don't, I don't buy TV shows. I try to make them and sell them. What
2: do you think is the biggest problem in the TV industry and how would you go about solving it? The biggest problem
0: in the TV industry and how would I go about solving it? God, I mean, where do you start there? <laughs> Lack of risk-taking how would i solve it take more risks
2: is that is that from channels or from you guys at production houses or i say it's
0: it's from channels yeah
2: okay interesting because because a lot of other people have said the similar thing where they've said oh i wish people would take more risks but then do you take less risk sending them less risky strips scripts because you know what they're after as well
0: so they're seeing less things to take risks on no, we're in a fortunate position though at Hattrick because we can, we're a production company so we get sent lots of ideas, like mm. me alone, like I said, I'm getting sent 200 ideas a year, mm. so I can send a less risky, Hattrick can send a less risky idea to the BBC and a risky idea to the BBC. Right. If you're a writer who's just come up with one idea that year, or two ideas that year, and they're both risky, whereas we've got 200 to choose from, so yeah, I'd say the more risk that can be taken, then the more of those sort of writers that are making those risks have a chance. Okay, um, who do you think is most underrated person in the TV industry? The most underrated person in the TV, well, other than me. <laughs> um, Who's the second most underrated? <laughs> um, I would just say in general, the writers are the most underrated person in TV. And that's like the collective noun for the writers because they, without them there'd be no ideas unless you're a superstar writer, you know, they don't they don't get massive amounts of money in this country and they're often, yeah, it's hard being a writer. So I'd say the most underrated person in the industry are writers.
2: Okay, last question. If you could go back to yourself when you were starting out and give yourself one bit of advice that would have helped you in your career, what would that be?
0: Be nice to writers. No, <laughs> <laughs> be nice to the poor writers. Don't take it personally. Just do your best because I think sometimes I used to think that if a show wasn't, you know, wasn't happening or wasn't good enough, it would be my fault. But actually, it's a team effort. And as long as you do your best and everyone's doing their best, that's what you can do.
2: That was Mark. I, as I said, I've sort of held this one for the end of the year because I thought it would be such a good one to end on. I'm so proud of how this one came out and how honest and open and amazingly frank he was with some of his answers it was so good and i i I loved it and it was a joy to put together thank you so much mark and if you've had a good time and if you've enjoyed this please tweet well you can't tweet him you can't tweet him because he uh doesn't have any social media tweet me at this made me cool and i will send him screenshots and links to your tweets i won't give you his email (laughs) you're not having his email to email him um but yeah he he was amazing and for me Obviously, I know how hard it is to break into TV, but I love how open he was about just how luck and timing often play such a big part in you even getting anywhere on TV, and the and the changes in society, and how they reflect in TV, and how long they take to come through, and it was just amazing. I really loved it. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please hit the subscribe button. I do a new one every two weeks. If you are new here, that's the best way of keeping track of the podcast. If you're old here, please do consider giving us an honest review on iTunes. The new year is just around the corner, and we're still just a few off getting 100 reviews by the end of the year. Can you help me hit that target? If you can, please do. I really, really want to hit 100 reviews by the end of 2017. So please go in there and give it an honest review. 100 good reviews, by the way. Don't just go there and give it one star. Like 100 good reviews. Outside of that, it's Christmas, And it's actually my birthday, or at least it was two days ago. If you want to give me a slightly belated birthday present slash early Christmas present, I'd love a donation. If you thought this podcast was worth anything, put a monetary value on it and sling it my way. It could either be on PayPal, if you just want to do a one-off donation, or you can become a patron from $1 an episode. Was that worth $1? Do you think... This podcast is worth donating $2 a month to. Just one for each episode. I do two episodes a month. Do you think it's worth that? If it was, please sign up. Patreon.com forward slash Ask the Industry Podcast. That's the end of the podcast for this year. I'll be back the first Friday of January. If you need some more content to listen to, may I please highly recommend my other podcast, which is called The Audio Time Capsule. It's where I bring on one guest. I get them to ask themselves 20 questions. And then a year later, I get them to come back on and answer those questions and then edit it so they are talking to their past self. Please go and listen to it. I'm so proud of it. I think you're going to love it. It's the most intricate and high concept podcast I've I've done and I think that I've found in a while. It's so long term and it's so logistically a nightmare. I would appreciate it if you went and downloaded it and gave it a chance. There are links in the show notes. They're also on my website. Oh, I forgot to mention, if you donate more than a fiver, you can buy my book. Uh, I've got a book It's called how to make a living by working for free. It's all about building a community around your free content and how to build those connections online and then hopefully get them to support you. So if you're thinking about supporting me, buy that and not only are you supporting me, you're also approving the book and then you're getting a copy of it to help your own projects. So give that a whirl. Uh, It's £5 for a digital copy or it's £8 for a paperback copy and I've still got a few paperbacks. So if you'd like some more, please do that. I can't guarantee Christmas delivery because it's in three days and I guarantee that Christmas delivery is going to be backlogged. But if you want the digital one, it's Amazon and it'll be on your Kindle or whatever device you want it on within seconds. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for subscribing. Thank you very much for donating if you do. And I'll see you all And I'll see you all in about 14 days' time. The RC Industry podcast is a fruit that got in Gravity's Way production for the internet. All elements were created by me, comedian Simon Kane.
1: Bye. Target.